are now listening to the December 26th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today, we are going to share the story of Ahaziah, the sixth king of Judah, as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 25, through chapter 9, verse 29, and 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. He became king in a young age and stayed in power for one short year. Ahaziah was the youngest son of Jehoram, the fifth king of Judah. His father Jehoram was a king who did evil in the sight of God by worshiping the idols his wife brought with her. God did not destroy Jehoram immediately, even though he did evil, because of the covenant he made with David. God waited for Jehoram to turn back to him, yet Jehoram continued to sin against God. He not only worshipped idols himself, but also instigated his people to follow him in his idol worshipping. Eventually, God punished Jehoram by taking away his palace, sons and wives, and striking him with an illness. While God was punishing the house of Jehoram, there was one son who survived, and that was Ahaziah. Ahaziah is the king we're going to talk about today. He became king over Judah in the 20th year of Joram, king of Israel. Ahaziah was 22 years old and reigned over Judah for one year. Before we proceed further, we need to clear a few issues about his age. In 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 26, it records that Ahaziah sat on the throne when he was 22 years old. However, if we turn to the King James Version, we are told that Ahaziah became enthroned at 42 as recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 2. Theologians explain that the reason for this discrepancy in Ahaziah's age is likely due to the scribe who copied the original biblical manuscript got confused about a stroke in Hebrew characters that differentiated 22 from 42. Simply, if Ahaziah became king at 42, after his father Jehoram, as recorded in 2 Chronicles, the numbers do not add up. His father Jehoram died at 40, and Ahaziah became the next king right after that. That makes Ahaziah older than his father Jehoram, and that doesn't make any sense. So we should take 22 as the correct age for when Ahaziah became king. The overall assessment of Ahaziah, as reflected in the Bible, is not good. The Bible says Ahaziah followed the ways of the house of Ahab, who did evil in the sight of God. 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 3 records that Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, counseled him to wickedness in the sight of God. Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab and came to Judah in an arranged marriage. 
After the marriage, she led her husband and the people of Judah to sin by making them worship idols, and after her husband died, she continued her wicked ways. Consequently, Ahaziah inherited his mother's evil ways, following in the footsteps of his grandfather Ahab and his father Jehoram. For that, God was about to render his judgment against Ahaziah. Some of the listeners may recall that last time God brought his judgment against Joram, the ninth king of Israel, through one of his officers, Jehu. We shared how Joram became injured while fighting against Hazael, king of Aram, and returned to Jezreel to treat his wound. Ahaziah and Joram had been allies to fight against Hazael, king of Aram, so Ahaziah came to see Joram. While Joram and Ahaziah were together in Jezreel, they came face to face against Jehu on their chariots. That is when Jehu drew his arrow at Joram and carried out God's judgment against him. Seeing Joram get killed, Ahaziah became scared and fled the scene, lest he might die as well. Careful readers of the scripture might notice some discrepancies in how the Bible records the circumstances surrounding the demise of Ahaziah. In particular, regarding the location where he fled to, the accounts in 2 Kings versus those in 2 Chronicles vary a bit. According to 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 27, on the one hand, when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is at Iblium. But he fled to Megiddo and died there. On the other hand, as recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 22, verse 9, it reads, Ahaziah, and they caught him while he was hiding in Samaria. They brought him to Jehu and put him to death. Second King tells us that Ahaziah died while fleeing by the way of the garden house, whereas Second Chronicles records that he died in front of Jehu after being captured while hiding in Samaria. These two accounts of his death may appear different. However, they are actually two separate but complementary accounts. Ahaziah, in fact, fled by the way of the garden house while running. The way of the garden house is called Beth Hagen, and it is about seven miles southwest of Jezreel. This was the road that led to Samaria and Jerusalem. Ahaziah fled as far as Samaria through his road and hid himself there. When Jehu ordered his soldiers to capture Ahaziah, they chased him as far as Samaria and found him, capturing him and bringing him to Jehu. When they arrived at the hill of Gur, near Iblium, Ahaziah attempted to escape and became wounded in the process. Ahaziah fled as far as Megiddo with the wound and eventually died there. Then his servants carried Ahaziah's body in a chariot and went to Jerusalem and buried him in his grave. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 9, there was no one in the house of Ahaziah that could bequeath the throne. This was likely because Ahaziah became king when he was 22 and died after reigning 
only one year. If he had a son during that year, this son would have been too young to inherit the throne. Alternatively, it could also mean that there was no one in the house of Ahaziah with enough power and wherewithal to stop Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, from taking over the kingdom. Second Chronicles chapter 22, verse 7 says that Ahaziah's destruction was from God. Ahaziah did evil in the sight of God and worshipped idols. God judged Ahaziah and ended his short enthronement by using Jehu as his instrument. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week. Protection while we sleep We pray for healing For prosperity We pray for your mighty hand To ease our suffering And all the while You hear each spoken need Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things Cause what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life all your mercies in disguise We pray for wisdom Your voice to hear And we cry in anger When we cannot feel you near We doubt your goodness we doubt your love As if every promise from your word is not enough And all the while you hear each desperate plea And long that we'd have faith to believe Cause what if your blessings come through Disguise when free.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is The Last Kingdom Characteristics of the Kingdom. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. If you want a life beset by uncertainty, focus on the kingdoms of this world. Focus on the things of this world and you will have a heart beset by uncertainty. But if you want to have that certainty, and we all do, listen, we want security, right? That's why we work hard to retire. That's why we set our lives up so that we can have a sense of security. If you want a sense of security, you're not necessarily gonna find it in this world, but I can tell you where you will find it. You'll find it when your heart and your mind are set upon the things above and on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's doing just fine, amen? Do you believe it? It is. And it will continue to do just fine. The king is sitting on the throne. The kingdom is advancing even as I speak. And there will be one kingdom standing when all is said and done. You know what's so great about the kingdom of God, by the way? It's everything that the kingdoms of this world are not. If I had an open microphone right now and I, and I said, hey, one by one, come up here and give us a one-word description of the kingdoms of this world, we'd have all sorts of answers. But some of the answers, some of the things we might hear are, this, are things like this. The kingdoms of this world are full of sin, injustice, anger, corruption, deceit, and death. But in the kingdom of God, none of that exists. None of that exists. Church, Hear the word of God this morning. Hear the word of God this morning. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Here's what it's like. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Amen. Listen, if you want to be sitting at the foot of any throne, this is the throne you want to be sitting at the foot at, at the feet of, right? Amen. This is where you want to be. This is where I want to be. 
Listen, while the people of this world desperately try to establish a utopia on this planet, and that's what everybody's doing, everybody's running around trying to establish a utopia, those of us who are believers are already part of a perfect kingdom with a perfect king sitting on the throne. Everything that the people of this world want, you already have. Think about that. Everything that the people of this world are longing for, you and I are already in possession of. And the full consummation of the kingdom of God is coming very quickly. Listen, Peter said that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit. He's quoting the prophet Joel. So when Jesus rose from the dead and the church started, Peter described that as the last days. In the last days, God will pour out his spirit. That happened at Pentecost. His Holy Spirit came upon the church. 2,000 years ago, the apostles were saying, we're in the last days. So for the last 2,000 years, we have been in the last days. I don't know if you realize that. We are in the last days. And so the kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom literally is at hand. Now, when is it going to come? I don't know. I don't know, but I know it's coming. And I know we're 2,000 years closer than we were, than we, than we once were. By the way, in this series, when I refer to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, I'm referring to the same thing. And that is because in the scriptures, whenever you read about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it is referring to one and the same thing. Okay? Are we good? You guys with me? All right. So here's the deal. This is what breaks my heart, and I'm sure it breaks the heart of many of you in here as well. For many people, this world is as good as it gets. When we look at this world, people are going, this is all there is. There is no planet B. Yes, there is. There is so much better on the horizon if you will lift up your eyes and see it. If you will lift up your eyes and see it. It's no wonder that people are so anxious, riled up, angry, frustrated, and hateful. I mean, the political issues right now in this country at our DEFCON 1. We're DEFCON 1. I mean, it is just that the tension in this country is incredible. And people are freaking, about, freaking out about all sorts of worldly temporal issues, whether it's extreme climate change as their, you know, climate change, who's in the office, who's, who's in the White House, who's on the Supreme Court. People are going nuts. And yet that is exactly what sets those of us who are Christians apart from everyone else. At least it should. We are not a people of despair. We are a people of hope. Are we not? At least we're supposed to be. Who, who should be the most rational, joy-filled, content people in all the world? It should be us. Listen, no matter what happens in this world, you guys, we are citizens of a perfect eternal kingdom that will endure forever with a perfect king reigning forever. The whole point, this, this whole sermon series, Last Kingdom Standing, really comes from this verse, Daniel 2, 44. And in the days of those kings, and it's talking about uh, Greece and Rome and those kings, but the, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Amen. When all is said and done, there's gonna be one kingdom standing and that is the kingdom of God. And that is the title of this series. Now here's what's really important to know. We're gonna lay a foundation today and here's, the foundation, here's where we're gonna start. Here's what's important to know about the kingdom of God. In one sense, it's already here. And in another sense, it's yet to come. Okay, that's an important distinction that you have to remember. So when John the Baptist came as the precursor to Christ, here's what he came preaching. He said, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. 
And here's what he said. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is, say it with me, at hand, at hand. It's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus did the exact same thing. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's here. So in one sense, when Jesus came, the kingdom of God broke into history, world history. Now, don't get me wrong. God's kingdom has always existed. God has always been on the throne. His kingdom has always existed. But when, he, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he means that it has bro- broken into world history in a way that it has never broken into world history before. And Jesus didn't just proclaim that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He proved it. And you know how he proved it? By performing miracles. Matthew 12, 28 says, but if, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's come upon you. When Jesus sent out the 72 disciples, listen to how he instructed them in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse eight. When you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The miracles attested to the fact that the kingdom of God had come in the first century. It had come with, the, with Christ being revealed in his ministry. But here's the deal. In another sense, the kingdom that Jesus ushered in was still yet to come. It was still yet to come. And we see this time and again throughout the scriptures. Let me give you one example. So Jesus tells a parable. Here's what it says. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and people are thinking, okay, here it comes. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. He's going to set up his kingdom. It's going to be amazing. Here it is. Jesus says, hold on a second. Let me tell you a little parable. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, and then return. Of course, Jesus is speaking of himself in this parable. He is the nobleman, the nobleman that goes away to receive a kingdom only to return at some point in the future. You see, we as Christians, we use two words to describe this, the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. When Jesus came in his first coming, he inaugurated the kingdom. It broke forth. It entered into humanity. It was in the presence of the people. The kingdom of God is at hand. He performed miracles, which proved that the kingdom of God had come upon them but the full consummation of the kingdom would not happen until Jesus' second coming. Now, the fact that the kingdom of God was in one sense already here and in another sense was still yet to come totally caught people off guard. You and I, that we go, I get it. I totally understand. It makes perfect sense to me. Imagine living in the first century and waiting century after century after century for the Messiah to come and knowing that when he comes, he's going to bring a kingdom with him only to find out that when he comes, he inaugurates it, but there's going to come a point later where the full consummation of that kingdom comes. That would have been hard for people to understand. As a matter of fact, at one point, the the Pharisees come to Jesus, and here's what they say. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, lo, it is, uh, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God of God 
is in the midst of you. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the guys that were supposed to know the most, the guys that were supposed to be the most educated, they, come to, they came to Jesus, they're, they're confused. Jesus, where, where is the kingdom? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. The, the kingdom of God, it's already in your midst. You just don't see it. You just don't see it. But here's what's fascinating. It wasn't just the religious leaders that were confused about this. Even John the Baptist at one point got confused. Remember when John did this? Calling two of his disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, why did John ask this? Remember when, when Jesus showed up on the scene, what did John say to his disciples? He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was a point in John's ministry where he's looking at Jesus going, there he is. He's the one. So what caused John to doubt later? Here's why. Is because Jesus had come. They were proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. And John ends up where? In prison. In prison. If anything, in John's thinking, if Jesus is the Messiah, I will be sitting on a throne shortly. I will be in Jerusalem probably somewhere sitting in a really good seat in Jerusalem, reigning over this kingdom that Jesus is about to bring. No, that's not what happens. John's in jail now. And he begins to wonder, are you the one? And so this concept, again, that the kingdom was already here in one sense, but yet it was to come in its fullest form later, confused everyone, even the very best of them. And that is why, folks, when you're reading your Bible, it's important to keep this in mind because you're going to read things like this. You are, all, you are already saved, yet your salvation is to come. You know how when you read verses like that, it's like, wait a minute, am I saved or is my salvation to come? Well, both. And then in other verses you'll read, well, you have been redeemed, but your redemption draws near. And you're going to wait, hold on a second, am I redeemed or is it coming? Well, it's both. And so this concept is very important even for us today as we read our Bibles. And this brings us to a really important point. And this is, this is critical. This is for our foundation as we build this series. The kingdom of God that Jesus was ushering in was unlike any other kingdom that has ever existed. Now, I tell this to people all the time. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? If you're here today and you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, here's what it means to be a Christian. It means to think exactly opposite of the way your flesh and the world thinks. It's really what it comes down to, right? The Bible says that my ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts, declares the Lord. So I always say, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, it's learning to think backwards. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, our flesh and our, in our minds, we want to apply earthly, worldly concepts or ideas to it. But Jesus says that his kingdom is radically different from any other kingdom. The fact was Jesus was inaugurating a spiritual kingdom in his first coming that would only come in its full physical form at Jesus's second coming. The kingdom of God will take on a physical aspect when Jesus comes back. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. We will have resurrection bodies, but at the inauguration of the kingdom, Jesus was establishing a spiritual kingdom. As one Bible teacher put it, this is an actual quote, but I put it in this format so it's easier to read. The kingdom of God is spiritual. It's a spiritual rule. It affords spiritual benefits. It occupies a spiritual territory. It reflects a spiritual glory. It creates a spiritual citizenry. This is what it does. 
that the kingdom Jesus was establishing was not of this world is revealed time and again throughout the Bible. It's a kingdom unlike any other kingdom that you've ever seen or ever talked about or ever known. And it requires us to think radically different about it on every front. John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Notice that he says it twice in this, in this one verse. Hey, my kingdom's not of this world. Oh, hey, by the way, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight for me. Now that's interesting. Why? Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Peter do? He fought to keep Jesus from being delivered over to the Jews, right? That's exactly what happened. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Even Peter was confused of this two principle of the kingdom already being present and yet still to come. Peter was confused. John was confused. The Pharisees were confused. Yes, the kingdom of God was at hand. But Jesus wasn't coming to, to form, at this point, a physical worldly kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. And it was going to be inhabited by people with new hearts and new minds. I've shared this before, but I'm going to share it again. I, I love playing basketball, and I was playing basketball one night many, many moons ago, many years ago, um, like on a Thursday night. And um, there was a guy that was playing with us then. I, he ended up moving. He was an awesome guy on fire for the Lord. And I, we were talking about the end times. And I said, um, can you imagine what the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like? And I was just like, I was trying to wrap my mind around it. And we were kind of marveling as we were putting our shoes on and doing all that stuff. And he stopped me and he said something that to this day affects, still affects me. He goes, as incredible, Bill, as a new heaven and a new earth might be, imagine perfect people, new people with new hearts that love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. And you know what? He was so right. There's so much to think about when you think about the coming kingdom. So often, though, we're focused on the new heaven and new earth. You want to know what's going to be so great about heaven? It's going to be full of perfect people. I'm talking about you. <laughs> I'm talking about you and me. Jeremiah says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Imagine living in a kingdom where everybody loves the Lord God all the, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. Can you imagine that? Imagine the unity that'll be there. Ezekiel 11, 19 says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. I love that. I will give them one heart. They will have a united heart. Listen, in this room right here, we have Democrats, we have Republicans. We're not one heart in here, really, in all ways, but we do have one heart and we will have one heart for all of, all of eternity when we focus upon the Lord and seek him. That is going to be what's great about the kingdom of God. Not only will we be in paradise, but we will be in paradise united with one heart that loves the Lord 
the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. Amen? This is what is yours, and this is what is mine. The mystery of the kingdom of God was just now being revealed by Jesus. It had come. It was in their presence, yet it was to come in its fullest form at some point in the future. And some of those listening to Jesus would believe upon him and enter that kingdom. And yet many others would reject Jesus and forever keep themselves out of the kingdom. And that is why, folks, this sermon series is so important because we're gonna be talking about the one kingdom that you can enter that you never have to leave, the one kingdom that you can enter and it'll never be shaken. So make sure to invite people because over the next seven weeks, we're gonna be unpacking this amazing kingdom. Again, today we're laying the foundation, but we're gonna be talking about some amazing things in this series. By the way, do you wanna know how amazing the kingdom of God is? I'll let Jesus tell you. This is what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells, that, uh, sells all that he has and buys that field. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound pretty amazing? It does. Now, in case you're confused, this is Jesus's ways of saying the kingdom of heaven is worth sacrificing everything in order to possess it. The person who truly understands just how amazing the kingdom of God is goes all in. They go all in. So in ancient times, as you can guess, there were no banks. There were no banks. Most people simply buried their valuables in the ground in a secret place known only to them. When people needed access to their valuables, they would go in secret like at night to take out what they needed and rebury their remaining valuables in the ground. So in modern times, the banks aren't open at night, right? But in ancient times, you went to the bank at night, not in the day. Now, needless to say, over the years, the ground in Israel literally became pregnant with people's treasures. So in Jesus' parable, there's a man, and he stumbles upon a treasure. It's a dream. It's a dream come true. He makes a truly incredible discovery and a potentially life-altering discovery. And he wastes absolutely no time, according to Jesus, doing all he can to secure this piece of property as his own. Here's the point, folks. Here's the point, and don't miss it. When a person truly comes to understand just how incredible, how wonderful, how beautiful, how valuable the kingdom of heaven truly is, that person is willing to sacrifice everything to go all in for that kingdom. Amen? It is no wonder that Jesus says in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy it. Because it's that good. It is that good. Compared to the eternal riches we get upon entering the kingdom of God, the things of this world are joyfully surrendered for the sake of the kingdom. Even our own lives. There's nothing that I will cling to when I get my eyes focused on the kingdom, when I realize how beautiful it is, how amazing it is, what is in store for me. When I realize that, the things of this world are joyfully surrendered. But you know what I do? And I know you do it too. Even as a believer who's been a believer for 33 years, I cling to the things of this world still. I do. It's amazing. I, I've spent 30 some odd years studying about the kingdom of God and setting my eyes there and keeping my, but then again, I find myself clinging to the things of this world and holding to the things of this world. And you know what it does to me? It makes me have an anxious heart, a fearful heart, a heart that is weighed down and burdened by the things of this world. 
I've said right now, we're at DEFCON 1 in this country. Many of us walked into this room today anxious, worried, and concerned. There's a, a lot that can bring us down, folks. But you know what? If ever there were a time in this country's history where Christians could stand out as different, it is now. Are you with me? Do you believe it? If ever there were a time in which we should shine as somebody, as a people in this country who are different, who have a different outlook, who have a different hope, who have a different expectation, whose eyes are set somewhere else, it is now. The people that we talk to and interact with, folks, this is your opportunity not to get your political point across, but to go to people who are only focused on politics and go, by the way, let me point you in a different direction. By the way, let me tell you about something different. Let me point you to a different king and a different kingdom. Let me get your eyes there. This is our opportunity, but I'm afraid I'm not doing it. So often when I'm out talking to people, guess what I'm talking about? Politics. There's nothing wrong with that though. There's nothing wrong, don't get me wrong. But if ever there were an opportunity in this country's history to shine as people who are different with a different hope, a different expectation, a different focus, and a different king ruling over a different kingdom, it's now. It is now. And I'm not sure I'm doing that. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm doing that. The kingdom of God is so glorious and wonderful, it is beyond your mind's wildest capacity to even comprehend. How do I know that? Because Paul said as much. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, no heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Folks, I love this verse. You know what it's saying? Here's what Paul is saying. On your very best day, functioning at your fullest capacity, you couldn't even come close to imagining just how incredible it is what God has in store for you. On your best day, functioning at your highest capacity, you wouldn't even come close to imagining what God has in store for you. Yet despite this, millions upon millions of people, billions upon billions of people will spend their days on this earth living only for the things of this world and the kingdoms of this world. And that shouldn't surprise us because that's the power of sin. What should surprise us is that those of us who have been released from that sin are doing just what the world is doing. We are focused on the kingdoms of this world and the things of this world, and we're acting no different than the people of this world. If ever there were an opportunity for Christians to shine, it's now. If you're here today and you've never repented and trusted in Christ, if you're outside the kingdom and have never come in, today's the day to do that. You're sitting amongst the different people. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I need you to understand the kingdom of God is in your presence. Its citizens are sitting all around you in this room today and we invite you to come into this kingdom that we entered at some point in our lives. Come to the king that will forgive you. Come to the king that died for you. Let him cleanse you of your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll adopt you into his family. Come to him. And like I said, we're gonna have people up here after the service. If we can pray for you, or if you've never trusted in Christ, let today be the day that you come and do that. And what I'm about to say, I'm gonna to say to everyone in this room, not just non-believers, but believers. Folks, this world has nothing for you. This world has nothing for you. The kingdoms of this world have nothing for you. And don't forget it. Come to the king and enter his kingdom. 
Focus on the king and focus on the kingdom. That can forever change your life, can change your daily life. Here's what's amazing to me. You wanna know what's so amazing to me? Is people will move heaven and earth to get into this country. Yet so many billions of people will fail to enter the one kingdom that puts all other kingdoms to shame, including this one. That is the kingdom of God. If you're here today and you've never entered the kingdom of God, enter the one kingdom that surpasses them all, even this one. That is the kingdom of God. Come to that king and enter that kingdom. But listen, if you're here today and you're already a believer, the message for you is the same as it is for me, and that is this. Get your eyes on the king and the kingdom that you have entered that is yours. It's not surprising that the psalmist writes this, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Do you remember when you first became a Christian, the joy you had in your heart? You were set free from the things of this world and you were, it was like, in your joy, you sold everything to buy that field and you did and it was the best decision you ever made. But what happens over time? What happens over time is that the world gets a hold of our heart and the things of this world and the worries of this world begin to weigh us down and before we know it, we're acting like everyone else. Father, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Please, Lord, let me live as if I had just discovered a treasure in the ground and was joyfully sold everything in order to get it. Let me live every second of every day like that. Amen? That's what I want. That's what you want. And by the way, life is so short, you guys. Your life is but a breath. You're here today, gone tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a mist. A mist, the Bible says, that appears and is gone. That's how quick life is. I do not have any time to waste. I do not have days to waste running around after the things of this world and being weighed down by the things of this world. I want to invest in where it matters. Many of us are obsessing about our investments right now because there's so much uncertainty. As a matter of fact, President Trump got COVID and what did the stock market do? It, it took a quick dive. I think it, it, as he got stable, it got stable. We're worried about our earthly investments. How much time do I think, spend thinking about my internal investments? Folks, the things I invest in this world are not coming with me. They're not gonna last. I don't even know where this kingdom called the United States will be 100 years from now. None of us will be here. I'm not sure it will be here, but you know what I do know? There is a kingdom that you can invest in that will be around forever. That is the kingdom of God. Let's stay focused there. And then by the way, that's why the Bible says things like this. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. By the way, that's in the imperative. And the imperative is, for those of you that are English buffs, it's, it's, the, it's, it's a command. If you're a believer, set your mind on things above. I command you, God says, to commit. It's not, it's not, hey, you consider this. It's do it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. What were you thinking about when you walked into service today? What weighed on your heart? What has you anxious and afraid? I know that when I came to church, I had, my heart was on worldly things, thinking about worldly worries. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. By the way, in the verses immediately following this parable of the treasure, Jesus says this, 
Again, the, king, the very next set of verses says this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. It was reported that the wife of the Roman emperor Caligula often wore vast fortunes of pearls in her hair and on her ears, neck, wrist, and fingers. Cleopatra is said to have owned two extremely valuable pearls, each which by modern day standards would be worth several million dollars. Pearls have always been a valuable commodity, but you want to know why they were so valuable in ancient times? They were easy to carry and easy to bury. Easy to carry and easy to bury. Remember the treasure hidden in a field? One of the great things about pearls is they were extremely valuable. They were easy to carry and easy to bury. And so, Israel would have been pregnant with people who had pearls and had them buried. Pearls have always been a valuable commodity. They still are. And oh, by the way, they will forever be. You want to know why? Because in the coming kingdom, it's described this way. And the 12 gates were 12 what? Pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Folks, all I have to say is, wow, wow. The point that Jesus is making with the pearls is the exact same point that he was making with the treasure hidden in the field. And here it is. When a person truly comes to understand just how incredible, how wonderful, how beautiful, how valuable the kingdom of heaven truly is, that person goes all in. That person is willing to give up everything joyfully in order to be a part of that kingdom. And so folks, when you get down to it, this is it. There are two groups of people in the world, those that are in the kingdom and those that are left out. If you are here today, you've never entered the kingdom of God. Let today be the day of salvation for you. Let today be the day that you come to the king, fall at his feet and say, I, Lord, need you as my savior. A wretched sinner that I am, please forgive me. Jesus died on the cross that you might enter the kingdom. It's a free gift for you received by faith like a child. It's the faith of a child. If I can pray for you, if anyone else can pray for you, we'll be up here after the service. But for those of you that are believers, here's the message to you and me. You have and I have a golden opportunity before us in the next 31 days. In a world that's gone crazy with the things of this world, we have the opportunity to point people to a kingdom that is not of this world. Amen? Take advantage of it. Take advantage of what is set before you. When your neighbor wants to talk politics, talk a little politics, but go, you know what? Here's the good news. When a coworker or somebody calls you, a family member calls you, or you're on Facebook in a debate about who should be on the Supreme Court, stop yourself and remind yourself that there is a king and a kingdom that you can point people to. Do it. And if you are here today and you are worried and burdened and weighed down by what's happening in this world, folks, come to the cross today. If you are a Christian, come to the cross today. Lay those burdens at the feet of the Lord. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know who wrote that? Peter, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So there we go. We're off and running. Don't miss next week. Don't miss these coming sermons, guys. We're going to be exploring this kingdom that is to come that is going to be amazing. Amen? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this day. And God, may we be a people sold out for your kingdom. God, restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Lord, give us a taste of the eternal today. Lord, let us go in to these next 31 days, a different people, a transformed people, people of a, citizens of a kingdom, God, that 
will never fade away, that'll never be shaken, that'll never be destroyed. Lord, help us to be bold. There are so many people we know that are looking around this world thinking this is as good as it gets. And Father, that there is no planet B. And yet, Lord, we know the truth. There is a new heaven and a new earth about to be revealed. A king on a throne who's righteous and good and faithful in every way. In the quietness of your heart, spend a moment in private prayer. If there's anything that you have been burdened by in this world that is stressing you out, just bring it to the Lord right now and lay it at his feet and ask him to take your eyes off this world. Father, we love you. We thank you as we go now, Father, out from this facility and back into the world. May we shine as lights for you. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in the name of your son, our savior. And the church said with me, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for coming. Have a great week. We'll see you later.
sands Bearing all the guilt of sinful men God eternal, humble to the grave Jesus Savior, risen now to voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 Following is a program, Transforming Grace. I'm Leslie Martin, author of the book, Transforming Grace. I have served with my church, Calvary Phoenix, for over 38 years, and it has been my privilege to teach God's Word with many people in our community through our women's ministries. 
I'm so blessed to share this simple book with you about God's love and grace for all of His people. I hope you will enjoy this time together as I read Transforming Grace. Now, what if you are a Christian and you're still acting and feeling like you are living under guilt and condemnation? You may feel down, discouraged, or have a nagging sense of guilt. Is there any reason a Christian will feel the condemnation of the law? Yes. If you are a Christian and you are choosing to live a sinful lifestyle, you should feel guilty. You will notice that I didn't say that you inadvertently slipped into sin. We all do that. If there is something in your life that you know is wrong and you won't let go of it for some reason, then it is good that the law says something to you like, that's not right. You should understand that it is wrong and you should feel bad about living in that sin. Please understand that I'm not talking about slipping and falling. I'm not talking about the sins that we all commit just because we make mistakes. What I'm singling out is a resolute attitude expressed as, I'm going to do this. I don't want to let go of this. If you are a Christian and you are hanging on to something sinful in your life, making it your lifestyle, then you should feel guilty for that choice. That's a proper use of law. You are under the law in that sense. You aren't lost, but you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit and by God's word that the lifestyle of sin that you have chosen is not what God wants for your life. If that describes you, seek out a mature Christian, a pastor or other Christian leader or a Christian counselor. Tell them, hey, I'm caught in this sinful pattern and I need to confess it. The scripture tells us to confess our faults to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. James 5.16 Sometimes sin gets a grip on us because it is hidden and we haven't confessed our sin and become accountable to someone who could help us. We need to tell someone and make ourselves accountable. Give permission to a particular individual to come up to you and ask, how's it going? That's code for, how is it going with this sin that has been entangling your life? This is a good thing, and it will help you to find freedom from a sinful lifestyle or habit. Sometimes you get so tied up that you can't even lift a pinky finger to help yourself. You need mature Christians around you who can help take off those ropes and set you free from the sin that is binding you. Confess your faults to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. Many of us, however, are struggling with living in grace and cannot attribute it to a deliberate determination to hang on to sin. We love the Lord and really want to live in a way that honors the love and grace he has extended to us. Yet we continue to struggle with condemnation and feelings of failure and spiritual inadequacy. Christians have been set free from the law to live a life in the freedom of grace. I can forget that I'm living in God's great grace even when I'm studying for God's word and getting ready to teach. One time, especially, I remember I was studying for a women's retreat message that I was to give. And every time I sat down to study, I would get so discouraged because my study time seemed to be sabotaged. Every time I tried to sit down and write 
something out of my control would go wrong. First, my computer was knocked off the network at church, and the technician on staff had to work on it during the entire time I had set aside for study. The very next day, when I'd cleared another block of writing study time, I got an emergency call that filled the rest of my day. I lost my study time again. I was fretting. Okay, I've got to get this done by the deadline, and now there's no large blocks of time left. It was a personal nightmare. There was no time in the Word, no time to hear from God as to what He wanted me to write, and the deadline was looming in front of me. On top of the time crunch, I was worn out because the week before I had been at high school camp. It was a blast, but I'm not a teenager anymore. Then on this particular day, I was so done with my rheumatoid arthritis. I was thinking, I'm done. It's over. I quit. This is it. I'm tired of chronic pain and fatigue and the costly treatments that don't seem to do anything. If one more well-meaning person offers advice on yet another folk remedy, I'm going to scream, don't tell me some natural cure because I'm done with that too. I'm done with all of it. I'm done with the disease and I'm done with the cures. I didn't want to go to the doctor and that day I had to go in for my medication treatment that involved an IV for several hours. I didn't want to get poked again. So I stomped into my doctor's office with attitude. I complained to the receptionist. I don't want to sit here for an hour before I get called. I grumbled to the nurse who actually came within a mere five minutes to take me back for the treatment. I griped at her as she was putting the blood pressure cuff on my arm. While the nurse practitioner was prepping me, examining, poking, and checking my joints for range of motion, I griped, complained, and moaned at her. I'm so sick of this treatment. It doesn't work. I've been doing it for two years, and it hasn't changed a thing. I can't live this way. I'd fallen into a very dark, self-centered pit. In the middle of all of this, these thoughts were running through my mind. I'm not being a good witness here. What if she knew I was a Christian? Oh, I hope she doesn't know my husband is a pastor. How can I be such a grouch? And I'm trying to write a study on living in the joy of grace. I have nothing to say. I'm the last person God would want to use. I am such a failure. What was fueling my despair? I was under the law. I was camping in law land. I had my tent pitched, my generator running, and I was cooking stew in Lawland. In the middle of my tirade, this nurse practitioner looked at me in the eye and said, I'm so proud of you for staying engaged in your health care. What? She continued, most people just give up and you are an amazing woman to keep going on with this disease. I was ready to cry. There was a lump in my throat and my eyes were welling up as I thought, what a sweet person. She's so encouraging when I'm such a complainer. It didn't even occur to me that God may have been reaching out to me to show his love and grace. A few minutes later, when I was sitting in the infusion room with a heating pad on my arm, waiting for the nurse to insert the IV, I heard the Lord speak to my heart. All he said was, I'm bending down right now. Just five little words, but I knew what he meant. He's delighted in me. You're delighted in me. 
the complaining, griping Christian pastor's wife who has just blown her witness to a whole office staff. God delights in us apart from our performance and attitudes. His delight is a gift of his grace. Romans 2.4 says, The goodness of God leads you to repentance. I was able to say, You know, Lord, I'm sorry. Thank you that you love me no matter what. Nobody else could love me like you do. Your love and grace are so amazing. You delight in me even when I'm a grouch. God always delights in us. Grace is not camping in law land saying, I'm so bad. I'm so horrible. Let God pick you up and carry you through the difficult times in your life. That's living in grace. 1 John 4.16 says, We have come to know the love which God has for us. Every Christian knows that God loves him, so the apostle adds three significant words, and have believed. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, 1 John 4.16. We know God's love, don't we? We know God's grace, mercy, and compassion. We know that he delights in us. Even with this knowledge, however, we must choose to live in his grace. We must believe his love and grace covers all our lives, not just our past failures, but also our present and even our future mistakes. Read 1 John 4.16 like you believe it. If you don't believe it, read it till you do. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. You believe it. You do, don't you? He loves us. He delights in us. Believe it. Hang on to it. Don't let the enemy entice you to camp in lawland. Stay in grace. I really like how Eugene Peterson paraphrased this verse. He paraphrased it. We know it so well. We've embraced it heart and soul, this love that comes from God. So what does it mean to live in grace? That's what we want to experience. We want to experience God sweeping us up off our feet and dancing with us in this beautiful dance of joy. We want to cry out, Draw me after you and let us run together, Song of Solomon 1.4. We've been set free through God's grace to live in the joy of freedom from guilt and condemnation and the assurance of God's complete love and acceptance all the time, every day of our life. He doesn't ever send us on the guilt trip. We're on the grace trip with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you delight in us and that you are carrying us in this beautiful, glorious, exhilarating dance of grace. Lord God, if we have been camping in lawland, help us to move out of law and freely enjoy living in the glow of your gracious delight. In Jesus' name, amen. What a privilege it has been sharing my book, Transforming Grace, with you. I hope that you have enjoyed our time together as God has revealed His unending grace through His scripture and promises to us. I want to again thank Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries 
for asking me to be a part of their special ministry that continues to reach people with the gospel message around the world. Sinners just like me 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.